Amen. If you would, please turn with me to the book of Acts. We're in Acts chapter 5. Acts 5, 17 to 32 is our passage this morning. Acts chapter 5, beginning in verse 17. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, They entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison, so they returned and reported, We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priest heard these words, They were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what would this this come to. And someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them in, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, Here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we, we pray this morning that you might bless us and keep us as we continue in worship now and the worship through the word. Lord, we pray that by your spirit you might bless this word to our hearts, help us to receive it, Lord, Lord, we desire, and myself especially included, to be taught in your ways. Lord, so would you give us the humility to be taught in your ways and to be led in your paths, teach us your truth, and lead us. For you are the God of our salvation, and it is in you that we put our trust. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. What is the value of a speech, or a lecture, or an address, or even a sermon? Some of the most memorable speeches in history came at the most dire situations. 
You take, for example, Martin Luther King Jr.'s speech, his I Have a Dream speech, or take Winston Churchill's World War II speech, we'll, take, we'll fight them in the beaches. Right? If you haven't read or heard that speech, you ought to. Words can be more effective in emboldening and strengthening and encouraging people than even physical resources. Right? Take a soldier, for instance, who's out in war, who's equipped with all that he needs to face the war at hand, but yet still cowering in his boots. But then a general gets up and encourages his men, delivers his speech, and all of a sudden, the soldier who was once fearful now is emboldened, is encouraged to go and face the war that's ahead of him. People go to lectures, go and attend seminars to be changed. Not by, by, not by being given money or by receiving resources, by, but by hearing words. Because words have a way of filling you up in ways that other things cannot. So consider these things as we turn to our passage this morning. Consider the words, consider the gospel encouragement, gospel emboldening that we see in this passage that I hope to show is not unique to the apostles, but is also given to the people of Christ. First, consider gospel witness. In the passage, we see the enemies of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is a party of the Sadducees, this religious sect, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and then put them in the public prison. This is a very public arrest and they placed in a public prison. We saw, if you might remember, yes, uh, not yesterday, last week, we went through Ananias and Sapphira. We saw sin in the church and how sin was dealt with in the church. This is a kind of attack, an internal attack by the devil himself. Prior to this, there was an external attack as the church faced persecution, namely the apostles. And now we see another external attack directed towards the church. Every garden has its weeds. Good endeavors have their obstacles. Glorious enterprises have their opponents, and we see that as the church dealt with sin, and then we see the church then thriving and growing, the apostles continuing to perform healing, continuing to proclaim the gospel, more and more people are coming to be saved with the gospel of Jesus Christ, and even those who are on the outside who have not yet made that step and believe in the gospel have a kind of reverence towards the church and even towards God. And then we have this but. But the high priest came, and what did he do? He arrested the apostles of Jesus Christ. The very teachers of Israel are the very enemies of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it tells us that they were filled with all jealousy. Jealous of what was going on. we get to understand a little bit of sort of what the inner workings of the heart and the mind of the religious teachers here. It's not the first time. John 12, 42, we know a little bit more of what's going on in the hearts 
of the religious authorities. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in Jesus, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess such belief in Jesus so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. Why is that? Because they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. They loved the prestige, the status of their office. They didn't want to lose it. And so they didn't want to then openly confess their belief in Jesus Christ. John 5.44, Jesus says to the religious leaders, How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? You have this obstacle that is preventing you from believing in me, and that is your pursuit of your own glory. We see that self-glorification not only prevents men from believing, but in this case, it can also turn them into enemies of the gospel of Jesus Christ. These religious authorities are filled with jealousy. They're jealous because the apostles are receiving more attention than they are. The people of Israel are not looking to the religious leaders for direction and guidance. They're not looking to the apostles. They're wanting to hear more about this Jesus. And so they go on to arrest the apostles, and yet having done what they could to try to shut up the proclamation of the gospel, notice then the necessity of the gospel. Verse 19, but during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. We have here a divine case of a prison break. The apostles were broken out of prison and nobody noticed. The guards who were there later on, we see that the guards were there. It's not that the prison was left empty. There were guards were there, but somehow, miraculously, their apostles were broken out of prison without anybody noticing. No one else in all of history has been able to come up with such a plan as this in a prison break. And then there we see the necessity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. How necessary is the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ that God himself sent an angel to break his apostles out of prison? to continue to go and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. In the face of fierce opposition, when the gospel must jump through great hurdles, as the gospel comes against strong enemies, many might come to the conclusion that the preaching of the gospel is an impossibility. But the Lord says differently. The Lord would say, the preaching of the gospel is not an impossibility, but it is a necessity. It is of divine necessity that the gospel must continue to be proclaimed. And we have examples in the gospels and in the New Testament of these instances of divine necessity. For example, Mark 13, 9, Jesus tells his apostles, preparing them for what is coming, be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues. And you will stand before governors and kings for my sake. And for what purpose? To bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. You'll be beaten. 
You'll be delivered over to councils. You'll stand before governors and kings for the sake of Christ. And for what purpose? To bear witness. In other words, these things will happen to you, and they must happen to you because you must stand before these high officials so that you can proclaim the gospel to them because they too must hear it. It is necessary. It must be proclaimed. Must, meaning obliged. It's obligated. It points to necessity. This divine necessity or this mustness of the proclamation of the gospel of Christ does not rest upon man, though man is commanded, you and I are commanded to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. But this divine necessity rests upon God who says that the gospel must be proclaimed and it will be proclaimed and he will make certain that it is proclaimed. Matthew 16, 21. Jesus points to this divine necessity in his own life. Matthew 16, 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. He must go. In other words, there's no other option. This has to happen. There's the only course of action. When we see these instances of divine necessity, it is saying that there's no other option. There is no other way and that there is nothing that's going to come against this happening. Nothing was going to stand in the way of Jesus going to the cross. Nothing was going to stand in the way of the apostle proclaiming the gospel. On the other hand, right, when we must do something, there are certainly many things that can prevent us from doing the thing that must get done. We must go to work tomorrow morning, but many things can stand in the way. Right? There might be traffic impeding us from getting there at the time that we ought to get there. We might be well on our way, but an emergency is at home, so now we have to turn around and head back home. We might get sick, and instead of going to work, we might not be able to get to work, even though we must get to work. But when we see this divine necessity, when Jesus says that he must go to Jerusalem, it's not only because he has to, it's because there's no other way, there's no other course of action, and that nothing is going to impede him from going. He must go. And he must suffer. And he must die on the cross. And he must be buried. And he must also rise from the dead. And he must also ascend on high to the right hand of God. There is no other way John 3, 7, this divine necessity, speaking to our own salvation, Jesus says to Nicodemus, do not marvel that I said to you that you must be born again. There is no other way of salvation. There is no other way to enter the kingdom of heaven. You must be born again. You must believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Acts 23, 11, the Lord speaking to Apostle Paul, the following night the Lord stood by him and said, take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. In other words, God was going to make sure that Paul made it to Rome 
so he can proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Then consider the boldness of the gospel. Verse 25, And someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. And the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. There it is again, this mustness, this divine necessity. We have no other option. There's no other course of action. We've been broken out of prison miraculously by this angel who then told us, you go and teach at the temple. So for them, obedience was not an option. No, we must go and, told, and do as we are told. You will tell us, you tell us to do differently, but no, this is the way that we must go. This is necessary. So we must preach. Romans 1, verses 1 through 6 also shows this divine necessity, but the ground of this divine necessity. There, the Apostle Paul himself writes, he is a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we receive grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. And then later on in that same chapter, he will say that I am under obligation, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. So he has this divine necessity about him. He must go. He is obligated to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the ground of this divine necessity is the fact that he has been set apart to bring about the obedience of faith through the gospel of Jesus Christ for the sake of the name of Christ. for the sake of the name of Jesus Christ. Yes, we proclaim the gospel, we share the gospel because we want man to be saved from their sins. Absolutely. But we also do it for the sake of the name of Jesus Christ. You and I are saved because of the name of Jesus Christ. You and I are saved to make much of the name of Christ through the proclamation of the name of Christ wherever we go. And so this divine necessity comes upon the apostles and it comes to us because of the gospel message itself, this message of repentance and forgiveness of sins. Because this is the only way in which man will be saved from the judgment and the wrath of God. 
So divine necessity is laid upon us to go and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this divine necessity comes with a particular kind of boldness as well. Just as Paul was a man under obligation to preach the gospel where he goes, and that divine necessity comes with a directness, with a boldness to go and proclaim that message. So also when one has this necessity about him to say what needs to be said, they will say what needs to be said because necessity compels him to share what needs to be shared. You cannot be marked by such a necessity without also having a boldness. And you're not strangers to that kind of boldness that comes from necessity. Certainly you've had difficult conversations in your life, conversations you did not want to have, conversations that perhaps that you were, kept you up at night, put a horrible feeling at the pit of your stomach, perhaps could not even eat well because you knew that there was this conversation that needed to be had, you were the only one who could have it, and to leave things as they are would only make things worse. perhaps for yourself, perhaps for those around you, perhaps for the person that you needed to confront, but you knew that this needed to be had. You must go and talk with this person. And so you spoke with the person and said what needed to be said, not because you wanted to say it, but because you had to say it. The apostle stood in the face of enemies of the gospel and said, we must obey God rather than men. We must go and teach. We must go and proclaim. There is no other option. And they said this knowing that these religious teachers were also the ones who were responsible for hanging Christ Jesus to a cross so surely they were probably thinking to themselves, we might suffer the same fate here. If they did that to Jesus, and surely they might do that to us as well. But when one has that kind of necessity about themselves, they say what, needed, what needs to be said despite the consequences that comes about. Secondly, the Spirit is witness. Verse 32, And we are witnesses to these things, Peter speaking for the apostles, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey Him. They are witnesses to these things. Just as John writes in his letter in 1 John, that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, they only proclaim what they have seen and heard. This isn't hearsay, this isn't rumors, they're not sort of receiving second-hand information. These are the apostles who walked with Jesus, who sat at the feet of Jesus, who witnessed themselves the works of Jesus. It is those very works and those very words that they then go on to proclaim to others. And this is so important to them that they even go on to look for these things when choosing another apostle to replace Judas. They had to be somebody who weren't necessarily a part of the inner 12 circle, but somebody who still followed closely behind them, who also saw Jesus and, and witnessed the works of Jesus and heard the words of Jesus. 
So they all became witnesses to these things. But then there's another. Verse 32. Again, I don't know if you caught this. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is also witnesses to the words and works of Jesus. So the Holy Spirit then is like a 13th disciple, you might say, who followed Jesus. And this Holy Spirit functions as a kind of indwelling apostle in the life of believers to help them to testify to the reality of Jesus Christ and the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so then it is this divine necessity and the boldness that comes from this, this, this necessity that all both comes from this Holy Spirit who is given to those who obey the Lord. How can the apostles stand before their enemies and continue to proclaim the gospel apart from the internal witness of the Spirit and the boldness that comes from the Spirit and this divine necessity? How can they continue to preach the gospel knowing that they are being watched by all these religious teachers were it not for the indwelling Spirit who gives them the sense of divine necessity and the boldness to continue to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ? How can they continue to proclaim knowing that they put themselves in danger every time they open their mouths? It is because the Spirit is in them and with them, filling them with this divine necessity and emboldening to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Words can change a person's life. It's one of the reasons why I read a lot and love reading because I enjoy the power that words can have. I mean, just think, one book or one chapter or one page or one paragraph or one sentence can change something about you for the rest of your life. And people go and pay thousands of dollars to attend lectures and seminars because they are looking to be changed. Not through resources or money, but through the power of words. The lives of the apostles are changed. And they're changed by action, namely the actions of Jesus Christ, his life, death, burial, and resurrection. But the apostles' lives are also transformed by the words of Jesus. So similarly, our lives, right? If you are a believer, a follower of Jesus Christ, your life has been transformed because of the actions of Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ died for you. But your your life is also transformed by the words of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For some of you, you heard the gospel of Jesus and your life has not been the same since then. The apostles, emboldened to do and say what is necessary by a living and indwelling spirit, is the same spirit who is gifted to all those who obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that when we share the gospel of Jesus Christ, the power to transform lives isn't just our words, it's not just our words. 
but it's the internal witness of the Spirit speaking through us the gospel of Jesus Christ, who saturates, who seasons those words, and Lord willing, makes them effective in the ears of those who hear. The reason why any of us has any assurance concerning the reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ it is because of the living witness of the Spirit in the life of believers. During the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. The Spirit emboldens believers to preach. And the Spirit also furnishes believers as well with what they need, the Apostles were broken out of prison and commanded to go and teach at the temple, and so they went. If the Lord commands, you can be sure that He equips you to obey that which He commands. If the Lord leads you to go in a certain direction, you can be confident that the Lord will give you exactly what you need to take the course of action that He's called you to. The Lord would not leave his people to sort of figure things out on their own. The Lord does not send his soldier into war without furnishing him with all that he needs to be successful. A man may be an excellent brain surgeon, but without his tools, he can do nothing. Only when he has the proper tools can he perform the surgery. So also, we can be confident that we will be useful in the kingdom of heaven because the Lord equips us with what we need to be useful in the kingdom of heaven, and particularly in the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. John 15, 5, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. In other words, it is necessary that we abide in the vine that is Jesus Christ that we remain in Him, that we commune with Him, that we walk closely with Him, that we follow in His commandments as a way of loving Him. Because apart from Him, we can do nothing that is of eternal significance or value or that is pleasing to the Lord. Just as a hammer is a useless tool without a hand to wield it, so we also must abide in the vine that is Jesus Christ so that we might be useful in the kingdom of heaven. If gospel proclamation is necessary, and the Spirit is a living witness, and the Lord commands us to go and share the gospel of Jesus Christ, we can be confident that we will have everything that we need as we go and tell. And yet, knowing that there is this divine necessity that comes upon the life of the believer through the internal witness of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. 
who desires to proclaim the gospel to others, and with that internal witness and that divine necessity also comes a particular kind of boldness that is needed to share this message, why is it then that at times, or many times, or even in seasons, or even right now, might we be filled with a kind of fear, perhaps? Why is it that we sometimes lack the confidence and the boldness that we need to share this message to others. This takes us lastly to the vessel's witness. The vessel as in you and I. Consider some of the hindrances or some of the impediments or some of the obstacles or some of the sort of the, the leeches that sort of sap away or drain whatever confidence that we might have in proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. One thing might be the overvaluing of our time. We're busy. We're very busy. We always have things to do. Some of us are driven by the tyranny of the urgent. Most of us are probably driven by the tyranny of the task. We're task-oriented. We have our tasks. We think things have to get done at this time. And there's no room for flexibility. And things have to get done. I'm not saying that you shouldn't get your obligations done and met. But be careful about how much you value your time and your task because we can value our time and our task so much that the neglect of people we can be so task-driven and so task-oriented that we never think about the person next to us or think about the person who works right beside us, that we never consider the eternal destiny of the person that we come across. You may have more time to complete your task and a person has to live. We can delay many things, but the one thing that no one can delay is the appointed time of their death. Let us not place too much value on our time and tasks that we neglect people, that we neglect thinking about others, that we neglect opportunities to take a moment to have a conversation with someone, even if it doesn't necessarily lead to a gospel conversation, but can I have a conversation with someone so that it leaves the door open for more conversations in the near future? Another one is fear, right? You and I, we fear many things. We might fear man's anger and sharing the gospel. But shall we be afraid of man's anger? Which is but for a moment when God's anger towards unbelieving man is eternal. And we have the one message that can appease the anger of God toward man's sin. And that is the message of Jesus Christ. We might fear no longer being accepted by our peers or those that we work with. Right, and that is a risk that we take. But shall we let such an outcome prevent us from evangelism? 
Shall we be so attached to man's acceptance, knowing that the God of the universe has accepted us in Christ Jesus? What could be better than that? We might fear offending others. That's another real risk. Yes, the gospel can offend, and the gospel is itself an offensive message. But the message is a physician that must cut before it can restore and heal. We might fear being thought ill of. We don't want people to think ill of us, to think negatively of us, to think badly of us. That certainly can happen. Consider the words of Charles Spurgeon. This might encourage you, this might make you feel worse. Spurgeon had once said, If any man thinks ill of you, friend, take no offense and be not angry, for you are worse than he thinks you to be. The Bible has a lot of bad things to say about you and I. Worse than anything that the world can say about us. And yet God still sent His Son into the world to die for our sins. So the Bible says a lot of bad things about sinful man. The Lord has a lot of things to say about our sinful state, and yet, in Christ Jesus, we are all accepted and loved by God through our faith in Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Another one is the fear of losing close friends and loved ones. And that's a hard one. It is hard to share the gospel with friends, close friends, family members who do not yet know Jesus. But consider the Son of Man who had no place to lay his head. Consider the Son of Man who had his own familial brothers who did not believe in him, in fact thought he was a deranged lunatic. Consider the Son of Man who had once promised in the Gospels, that promise that still stands true today, that if any should lose father or mother or brother or sister or spouse for his sake and the Gospel, will receive a hundredfold, will receive fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters in the kingdom of heaven. Another hindrance to this divine necessity that gives us this boldness to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ is not walking closely with God. Consider the heart of Jesus Christ towards sinners. Jesus says, come to me all who are heavy laden and I will give you rest. He says in the gospel of John that anyone who comes to him, he will never cast out. The heart of Jesus is opened wide for all sinners. And for us to have such a heart towards sinners, we need to just simply walk closely in communion with Christ Jesus. But it is difficult and near impossible to have such a heart towards sinners if our own heart is far removed from the heart of Jesus Christ. And if you are dabbling or toying with sin and only makes things worse, dabbling and toying 
with sin only lightens the burden of evangelism because dabbling and toying with sin only lightens the gravity in your own mind of sin. And if sin is not taken seriously in your own life, then you are also then not taking the judgments that sins deserve with a gravity that deserves to be considered. And if you are not taking with great seriousness the judgment that comes upon sinful man for his offenses upon God, then you will not consider as seriously as you ought the dire circumstance that man is under apart from Christ Jesus. Another one is that we are not made urgent by eternal realities. There was a time when people lived with a greater sense of death. This greater sense of knowing that, they're, that they may not live a very long life. But thanks to medicine and technology, which in many respects is an incredible blessing from the Lord, and these things have now helped man to live longer and healthier lives, but with that also comes this assumption that everyone is going to live a long life, including our own selves. We assume that we're going to live a long life. We assume that everyone else is going to live a long life, not just a long life, but also a healthy life. There's this Latin phrase says festina lente, which means make haste slowly. It means to continue to move forward, but with deliberateness, with an intentionality. The Bible has its own way of saying these things. In Psalm 90, verse 9, For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Verse 12, so teach us to number our days so that we may get a heart of wisdom. There's a particular kind of wisdom that only comes from our acknowledgement that long life isn't guaranteed. And so when you walk about with this sense of knowing that long life isn't guaranteed, when you walk about your life not having this assumption that you are going to live long and healthy, you walk about with a kind of wisdom. You're more intentional. You are more deliberate with what you do with the time that you have left. But when we don't have this sense of our own finiteness, we assume that we have all the time in the world. We have the time to share the gospel. If not, this, not today, then tomorrow. If not, if not the next week or next month or next year, there's always time, always time, but there isn't. We don't have all the time in the world. So in all of these things, what might be of some assistance to us we're desirous of, of a greater sense of this divine necessity and this boldness to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because what we don't want is to have the Spirit in us who is a, a witness 
to the works of Jesus, which is an encouragement to us. We don't have to have, have been there to see with ourselves, with our own eyes, the works of Jesus, but we have with us already somebody who was there, who was willing and able and ready to speak. And what we don't want is to put our hands over the mouth of the Spirit and keep Him from speaking. Some things to consider, and this will be brief. To be more deliberate in our thoughts, think about the plight of sinful man. Think about the plight of those around you. Also, as I was preparing sermon this week, I was at a coffee shop, and which I don't normally do. It's nice to get kind of change the scenery, but I find it mostly distracting than anything else. But as I was preparing this, I could not help but think about all the people in the coffee shop other people who are there engaging with one another, the people behind the bar and people coming in and out to grab their orders. I couldn't help but think about how many of these people know Christ. How many of them are headed to eternal judgment apart from Jesus Christ? I confess to you, that's probably the first time I'd have had such a thought in a very long time and thinking about the eternal destinies of others. And maybe I am not alone in that, but when was the last time? How often do you consider the eternal destinies of those around you? And pray for opportunities to share the gospel of Jesus Christ and believe that the Spirit who is in you will embolden you to share that message of Jesus Christ. The Spirit equips us to share this message. But there's also things that we can do ourselves to equip ourselves to help us to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. I was taught many years ago sort of a, 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 a very practical way of thinking about one's testimony and how to share your testimony and even how to share the gospel with others in a very kind of succinct and clear way. And that is thinking about three different categories. Sin, Savior, and saving faith. Sin, pointing to your life before Christ. For some of you, it's very different. because For some of you, you grew up in a Christian home and you cannot pinpoint the exact time you believed in Jesus Christ and praise God for that. So it might look a little differently for you when it comes to sharing your testimony or even sharing the gospel, sin, right? What is it that makes the gospel necessary? It is our sin that makes the gospel necessary. And then saving faith, the proclamation of the gospel, who is Jesus and what has he done? His life, death, burial, and resurrection. When we consider your own testimony, what happened to transform your life? When did you hear that message? When did things click? When would the lights turn on? Then saving faith. How has your life changed since then? How has your life been transformed? What fruit has your life produced since believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ? Something else to consider in terms of assistance is to pray with the saints. 
Pray with the saints. Pray for the salvation of the lost. There's certainly value in praying in your own prayer closets, in your own time alone with the Lord for those who have yet to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. But pray with others as well. We're praying tomorrow here at the church at 6. Praying for many things. Praying also for those who are lost. This particular point is very sweet to me because years ago I would meet with one pastor and several others there were other men in the church one day a week early in the morning, so we would pray specifically for those who are lost. And on that list was my brother. And for years we were praying and praying until one day the Lord finally saved him. Pray with the saints for the salvation of the lost. And then lastly, do you want Christ to be glorified? In Romans 1, the Apostle Paul says that he was called to be an apostle and to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of the name of Jesus Christ. We share the gospel because people need to be saved. But we also proclaim the gospel because we want the name of Jesus Christ to be magnified. We want his name to be proclaimed. We want Jesus to be glorified more and more as we share the gospel of Jesus Christ. We cannot control how people receive the message or what they do with the message, but we continue to spread the fame of God's name as we go and proclaim that gospel message of Jesus Christ. Let us go and let us share and let us believe that as we go and share, that the Spirit will also equip us and help us and embolden us to share that message with others.